Welcome to the Badger Cast, a podcast by the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership. I'm Ryan Owens, the director of the Thompson Center. Thanks for joining us today. Well, welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time and we're very, very excited to have with us today the 54th Speaker of the United States House of Representatives and Janesville native, Speaker Paul Ryan. Mr. Speaker, thanks for being with us today. Hey, Ryan. My pleasure. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Happy to. So let's just start off and, and, and maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about what you've been up to. What, you know, what are you working on these days? What gets you motivated? Well, uh, a lot of the things that I worked on in my career, I still obviously have a passion for and a vocation for. So I've stayed involved in those things. Um, I'm a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So I work on some policy issues like entitlement reform and national security policy, which are things that I've long cared about. But you mentioned Janesville Native. My, um, it, my downtown Janesville office is where our American Idea Foundation is based. And that's the foundation that I built um, to focus on poverty solutions. And a lot, a lot of stages in my career, I spent a lot of my time working on trying to understand poverty, uh, the stubborn multi-generational poverty, and policies that alleviate poverty. Near the end of my tenure, I was able to put into law uh, through the tax code and other mechanisms, some, some laws that I think and policies that are really gonna make a difference in the poverty space. And so the American Idea Foundation is really focused on these poverty solutions, getting those out to the country and, and building solutions that can be scaled and replicated and repeated throughout the country so that we can really put a dent in poverty mm-hmm. and try and go at root causes of poverty and focus on the sources so that we can really make a big difference. And that's from making sure that the Evidence Act, a law I wrote, is well executed to building a big database of poverty solutions that people who wanna fight poverty can go to for support and for some assistance. Um, We believe with all of this, we're starting a new, effectively a new vocation or new social science, which is evidence-based poverty solutions or evidence-based policymaking. Mm -hmm. And that is using data and analytics and random control trials to measure what works, scale, repeat, and make sure you don't repeat mistakes. That kind of technology and that kind of knowledge can and will be brought to the federal government, but also to the private sector and to the philanthropy sector as well. And that's the kind of stuff I work on at the American Idea Foundation with our team. And we think it's going to be a big difference maker. Interesting. So what are some of the solutions there that, that you think would work on this? I mean, are there one, two, three particular policy prescriptions that you think could really, really be helpful in terms of addressing poverty? You know, there's really an endless about these, but there's some that I'm really personally, uh, I care a great deal about that I think we're showing a lot of progress. We need lifelong learning. We need people to get skills uh, for the jobs of tomorrow with technology displacements that are occurring. And so one of the things that we're focused on is how do you get people in two-year school and get their, get their skills acquired and stay through it? There's a big problem with people not graduating with their associate's degrees. Mm-hmm. And if you can get an associate's degree in this 21st century, you can often get yourself in a really good pipeline for a good career. Um, another thing that I'm really enamored with, and, and this is through the sort of Catholic Social Charities Network, are case management navigators that help people who are deep in poverty find them where they are and then bring services and knowledge to them and a a person, a case manager, to help them build a plan to get out of poverty and work themselves out of poverty and stay out of poverty. I work with the Laboratory for Economic Opportunity at Notre Dame, and we're running trials on this right now Hmm. um, at places across the country 
to really figure out how best to do this so that this kind of service can be scaled and replicated using tech and data and analytics um, to really move the needle. This is how you get at what I call stubborn multi-generational deep poverty. Because if you can get at the root causes of that and break its cycle, you can truly make a trajectory altering difference in, in the cause of fighting poverty. And then we were trying to build a system that can be replicated across the country. That's an important issue because you know conservatives always talk about the integrity of the individual and everything that we do should be focused at the individual level. And it sounds like a policy such as this treats individuals, as you say, sort of meets them where they are. And that could be really, really useful. I suppose that that touch, that constant touch. That's right. And, and using private sector, you know, capital, you know, opportunity zones and impact bonds and private sector know-how by applying that kind of capital and, and not know-how, you can really make a big difference in poverty. And, and in the past, you know, in the 20th century, the war on poverty was basically a bunch of government programs right. run by government bureaucrats. Um, and they kind of missed out on a lot of innovative ideas and proper incentive structures that really move the needle. And so that's, that's the kind of thing we're trying to incorporate here. It's basically using free enterprise principles and applying them to the problem of poverty. And I think we're going to get big differences and big outcomes. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Thanks for sharing that with us. And for folks who are interested in learning more about that, they can go to AIF, yep. Yep. American Idea Foundation. Excellent. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about sort of a quick segue to young people today. I mean, we just talked about multi-generational poverty, the issues that are associated with that. You know, we have what could quickly become multi-generational polarization with what we're seeing right now. So let's talk a little bit about that. And I know that you feel pretty strongly that the rise of polarization that we've seen across the country over the last 10, 15 years or so has been unhealthy. And uh, you have some thoughts about it in terms of, of younger people and what they're going to experience as they come into the political arena. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, it, it, one of the reason I'm concerned is it's getting so out of control and it's being digitized and monetized mm-hmm. um, with 21st century you know, social media technology. I teach at Notre Dame and uh, one of the classes I participated in co-teaching a semester ago was the rise of polarization. Yep. And try and help young people sort of identify and see the fact that, you know, when you have an online presence or you just go online, you're inevitably going to go into some ideological cul-de-sac and you're probably going to be just getting reinforcing views. And today, media and technology more or less tells you what you want to know. So we have, we have right. moral relativism, we have algorithms, and we have, you know, all of these, these sites that feeds you what you're already biased toward. Yep. And that confirmation bias that is now digitized, and there's a lot of people who make a lot of money feeding that, it is really animated by this ecosystem that pulls us into our cul-de-sacs and keeps us focused on just what we believe in and that the other side are people that aren't just people with different views, but they're enemies, right. they're, they're outsiders. Yep. And, yep. And, and I'm really worried about this. And so I don't, there's not a great answer to, how do you reduce polarization or how do you get people to, to, to reintegrate in society other than we've got to find ways to revitalize civil society where we live our lives, between, the space between ourselves and our government without technology. How do we as individuals get involved at a human level, at a personal level with people who don't think like us, who don't look like us, who aren't like us, and, and, and build lasting relationships and get a sense of empathy and a sense of understanding. And the thing I always tell young people is don't lead with emotions. You right. have two ears, you have one mouth, use it in that proportion. 
and just really work at trying to understand the perspective of another person, walk in their shoes, and hopefully they'll do the same to you and you can develop a better understanding. You know, I grew up, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. Yep. That yep. was what communities were. I mean, we didn't have all of this tech. Yes. So it is so much harder for these generations to do that, but all the more reason why we have to emphasize that. And the, the best way, I think, is to just breathe as much life as we can into these civil society institutions, our churches, our communities, our sports leagues, our schools, well, all of those things. Yeah, and and so, put the darn phone down sometimes. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree anymore with that. So that raises some questions. And I'm with you on this, too. I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s. I watched Ronald Reagan. I watched Tommy Thompson. You know, they were very uh, they were they were conservative Republicans, but they were able to work with others. And the problem that we face today is that even people who want to try to do that, you know, walk in the other person's shoes, give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, where do they go to do that? Because we're we are now living in communities, basically, that are getting more and more homogenized. Uh, yeah. As you say, we got algorithms and everything with social media that do that. Our workplaces have become homogenized. Everything has become homogenized. I mean, basically, the only place we these days can sort of uh, you know cross pollinate is at churches, and people are like, less religious today than ever before. So, you know, wh what space can we carve out? I mean, zip codes and area codes have become self-selection modes. I mean, it's it, it, people always say, well, gosh, if you guys in the House of Representatives just you know cleaned up redistricting and 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 had better districts that were more evenly balanced. We, you know, Congress would work better. Well, the, here's the issue: people are redistricting themselves into clusters of ideological, you know, sameness. And so, most congressional districts are either really red or really blue, and there's a whole, not a whole lot in between. I actually came from the first district, of Wisconsin, which was a Democrat district by three points in my early career, and it ended up becoming like an R2 district, R5 at the end. Mm -hmm. But for 10 years, it was the centermost congressional district in all of America, according to the political report. Oh, interesting. That made me have to relate to people who didn't agree with me, listen to people who didn't agree with me, know people who didn't agree with me. And it made me such a better member of Congress, a better leader in Congress. And I do wish that, that people had that experience, but that's just not how the country is stratified. It's not how the country is designed. So we have an even harder lift now because people self-select on where they go and where they locate all the more reason why you have to look even harder and try even more to get yourself out of your comfort zones and maybe that's churches maybe that's civic organizations you know in Janesville you got the Rotary Club you got the Kiwanis sure. Club there's yeah. lots of different places frankly in the suburbs and the big cities or in the rural areas harder to do you know I think in the medium-sized towns and it, it's you have no choice but to integrate with people who are different so I think we've got new challenges and I think we've got to look harder at, at, at means to do that. And then you need leaders. This is the last point I'll make. Um, my mentor was Jack Kemp and he, like Tommy Thompson, were totally opposed to identity politics. Reagan was opposed to identity politics. Yeah, yeah. And identity politics used to be a convention of the left where they practiced sort of Solowinsky divide and conquer politics. But now the right in some places practices identity politics as well. And there are those who believe with digital technology, you can slice and dice an electorate so that your group is, you know, 50 plus 1% more than the other. And that act of dividing electorates into how they're different from one another is extremely divisive to our public conversation, mm -hmm. our politics. And so leaders have to eschew, have to push away identity politics. So there is something that is incumbent on our political leaders to yeah. be against identity politics, to swear it off. The consultant class that tries to push this stuff should be sent packing. 
And I think that that's something that leaders in this country need to push as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you anymore on that. I think the identity politics that we are seeing is just, it's ripping us apart at so many different levels, just politically, but also at the institutional level within companies, within universities. It's just the stratification and it's a, it's just others, everyone else around exactly. you. And that's not a good idea. Well, you know, our friend Tommy Thompson, you know, used to say all the time that good policy makes for good politics. And I think that was right. And, and let's talk a little bit about where we are with policy and politics at the national level today. You know, uh, President Biden ran on a, a ticket of sort of being, you know, the anti-Trump. He was going to be the, the antidote to the constant motion and, and, you know, and Twitter, you know, narcissism from the left or for the right and, and to bring unity back to the country. And um, so far, his governing has been relatively tame to the extent that he's not out in front of cameras all the time but his agenda seems anything but. What are your thoughts so far on what we've seen out of the Biden administration and what kind of room might there be to work across the aisle? Yeah, I'm a little concerned because um, as you mentioned in Joe, and excuse me, President Biden, I know him, I like him, he's a nice person. Um, he is an agreeable guy, he does. I've done agreements with him myself. So he himself is naturally disposed to um, you know, finding common ground with people on the other side of the aisle and getting agreements done. Um, the team beneath him, maybe less so. Mm -hmm. the, the, the thing that makes me a little concerned at this moment is on um, their COVID bill. Ron Klain, his chief of staff and others said, look, we made the mistake in 2009 when we tried to get Republicans to work with us on stimulus and it dragged us along and then it took too long and then we finally did it on our own. So we just want to learn from that mistake and, and cut to the chase and just ram it through. Um, there's a big difference. I, obviously, I was very involved at that time. Um, they really didn't ask for our participation in 2009. I remember Chris Van Hollen had one 30-second conversation with me, which is, you guys going to support this or not? Said, <laughs> you're not you, you, there's no, are you going to let us have some input? Are you going to take our ideas? And he said, no, this is pretty much, this package is pretty much done. So a coalition of there the really willing. wasn't that kind of an outbreak. There wasn't really a coalition of the willing there. And they basically, you know, we basically fought it out. Um, this was different because COVID is a pandemic that everybody believes is, is a crisis that needs attending to. Um, and you had Republicans offering solutions. You had 10 senators go down to the White House to say, you know, we agree on, you know, half of this stuff. Let's yeah. work together. Here's a package of, I forgot, it was like a $900 billion package. So you had, very different than 2009, Republicans saying, we see it like you see it in many ways. We have suggestions. We'll work with you. Instead, they chose reconciliation, which yeah. is a way of avoiding having to work with the other side and ramming it through. So if you can't get bipartisanship on something like COVID and getting the economy out of you know, the COVID economy, I don't know where else you're going to find bipartisanship in this, in this day and age. So I, I really think they whipped on this one and they, they had a great moment. And yeah, it wouldn't have been $1.9 trillion. It would have had all this, you know, spending for the left you know, wish list, but it would have had the core of this package, the COVID stuff, some of the economic stuff, um, you know, unemployment and, and stimulus checks. Those would have been in the package with Republican support. And they walked away from it and chose to use reconciliation. So I'd say they got off to a pretty darn partisan start, yeah. uh, unlike what Joe was messaging in the campaign. And it's not really, frankly, a great projection of what's to come.
Yeah, I, I think that's right. He had an opportunity there. I mean, politically, it, it would have been, I think, a very strong move on his part to kind of deal with Republicans there. It would have made him look magnanimous. It would have made him look like he was engendering all this bipartisan unity. It, it, that's right. Uh, and, and, and you're right. They just whiffed on it. And, and then what we got, of course, was this package under the COVID. I mean, I, one of the things that really, really just concerned me was the fact that a uh, provision in there would give $1,400 per week to federal workers whose kids are at home. And it would give these workers up to $40,000 through the end of September to stay at home and do nothing. And yeah. I mean, the average salary here in Wisconsin is like $48,000. And so these people are being paid approximately 80 to 90% of the average Wisconsinite salary to do nothing. And that's just not gonna sit well with people. Look, let's just take a macroeconomic standpoint. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of good labor economists who've crunched these numbers. I've read some of their work you're basically buying up the unemployment rate here. You're basically making it so that a person who will make a rational decision says, I'm going to hold off going back to work longer because I'm making more money not working with all of the stimulus. Now, there's always an issue here. And I spent a lot of time on this issue when I ran the Ways and Means Committee, which is under extraordinary circumstances, you need you know higher unemployment benefits. If you're having lockdowns and you're making people stay at home, then naturally you need supplements and things like that. But we're coming out of lockdowns now. We're trying to open the economy back up. Vaccinations are rolling out the door. So this summer, you want the economy to recover. And most jobs come from small businesses. And most small businesses right now are are beginning to run into labor shortages. And they're running into labor shortages because people are rationally saying, I've got all this money coming from not working. I will stay home and not work. And then there's skills atrophy. So I really think they made a big mistake from just an economic standpoint, which is they're going to have, as a result of this, a higher unemployment rate than they otherwise would have. And frankly, Republicans, were, were working with them on this. There, there's a happy medium and a, and a fine line. I think they crossed the line and they went too excessive. And as a result, more people will not be working. They'll be receiving payments. Skills will be atrophying. But more importantly, those businesses won't get the labor they need. And then the economy won't grow as fast. And they're slowing down the economy at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. And revenues will be lower as a consequence. That's right. Well, so so let's talk about something that they might do right. This one, I think you and I kind of agree it was a no-brainer. It was surprising they didn't they didn't work with Republicans on it. It may, it may wind up being a knucklehead move. Where do you think they might be able to get something done pretty effectively? Or maybe there is something they already have done that you think has been pretty effective? Well, I think the thing that everybody more or less agrees on is that there's a challenge in great power struggles with China. We call this decoupling. That's going to happen. And I think most Republicans and Democrats who, who look at this issue see it similarly, which is we've got to protect ourselves, our technology from cyber attacks, from China competition. We want the free world to be able to be, stay free. And when you look at all the technologies that are rolling out there, whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, the internet of things, cryptocurrencies, all of these things, it's really important that the free world led by America leads in these cutting edge technologies, because if China takes over and dominates, then um, they can they can really intimidate the world. They can really, um, they could become a ubiquitous surveillance state. It gets kind of, you know, scary at the end of the day. Yeah. So yeah. where I think America um, has to lead and Republicans and Democrats agree is on this sort of strategic decoupling with China so that the free world and, and the high tech world stays free. Uh, that to me is a pretty big deal. And then I think infrastructure and some other sort of meat and potato issues, you'll see some people coming to agreement on. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, let's hope so. Uh, it's important for all our sakes. We can't have every bill be a, a partisan bill. Obviously, there is something good about the parties staking out their positions and advocating for those when they get into office. But, you know, you can't let that drive everything to nothing in the government these days. So wonderful. Well, Speaker Ryan, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your insights. We wish you well as you're putting together poverty solutions for Americans. And, you know, just keep that optimistic spirit. We appreciate it. We love it here in Wisconsin. Absolutely. Go Badgers, go Packers. Good to be with you, Ryan. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tommy G. Thompson Center on Public Leadership. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a positive review so we can expand our audience. Thanks for listening. And remember, liberty is a blessing. Liberty is a blessing.